Well, I, uh, Laura and I are glad to be here um, for a couple reasons. One is that we are both currently homeless. So um, that's actually true. Uh, we're in a ministry transition. I, uh, for the last three years, have taught at Faith Baptist Bible College and the biblical counseling and loved it, been, been awesome. But we missed pastoral ministry, and so we're in a bit of a transition now. Um, we uh, owned a house in Minnesota that we had rented out. We, we sold that. We're out of the duplex that we were renting in Ankeny. And so we're, we actually are, uh, don't have a, a place to call home right now. My, yesterday was actually my mom's birthday. And so I called her. And I had told her that we're going to be at family camp this week. So I mentioned that that's where we were. And uh, I told her that I was one of the speakers. And she said, oh, I, I thought you were going to camp just because you didn't have anywhere to live. So apparently even my mom has resigned herself to my homelessness. Um, uh, just so you know, the stage of life that my wife and I are at, our, our youngest two children uh, graduated from college this last school year. Um, our youngest is with us for the first couple days uh, this week. Um, she's got she's to leave after that because she has a job and, and a home. Um, <laughs> So compared to us, she's killing it. I mean, she's really, she's really killing it right now. So um, we, have, we have four kids. Um, our two oldest uh, live in different cities in Florida. Um, our uh, youngest, who I said is, is here, um, she's actually going to be going to um, Taiwan this next year um, to learn Mandarin. Um, and then uh, our uh, uh, youngest son, is going to be in Minnesota, uh, going to graduate school. So we got kids all over, um, and we're uh, kind of excited about the stage of life. We're excited about what God has for us in ministry. Um, we're looking at a church right now that is looking at us, and it looks like it could be a fit. Um, and so we're uh, um, we're bumming off the kindness of strangers for the next few weeks. So that's been nice. We've enjoyed that. Uh, the IRBC theme, as as Dave mentioned this morning, is writing for the brand. You see it all over. All the stuff here, 2 Corinthians 5.20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Writers for the brand, ambassadors for Christ, part of being an ambassador is adorning the gospel well. And I think that um, all Christians love salvation, but not all of them tend to love sanctification as much. So they, they think about sharing Christ, but they don't think about how they need to grow. And I, and I hope that's not you. Um, from salvation until death or the rapture, we are supposed to be growing. So my goal this week is to help you see the necessity and possibility of spiritual growth in your life. I want you to see that you can grow and how you can grow. And I pray that it's a help to your spiritual walk because Jesus wants you to be different, and you can be different. When I was in college, I was in a few weddings of some friends, and it's not common anymore, but every wedding I was in, all the groomsmen and the ushers, they all rented tuxedos. You know, now guys, you know, all buy the same suit or they just get the same tie, which honestly, those are far more practical um, decisions. 
But it used to be that you would get a postcard, take it to any tux rental place, some of you know what I'm talking about, and they would size you, and then you would mail that to the place the groom had selected for renting your tux. And then the day or so before the wedding, all the guys would go to the tux shop together and try on their tuxedos to make sure that everything fit right. And of course, it goes without saying, but nobody tried on their tuxedo over their clothes. I mean, you have to take off one set of clothes in order to put on the new fancy clothes. And that's the picture that Paul uses to describe salvation and, I am going to argue, sanctification in Ephesians 4. Taking off one set of clothes and putting on some new, better clothes. Uh, This past week, we were in uh, Florida visiting my son, and Laura and I, we, we try to walk together for 30 minutes every day. We've done it for years. It's a great time to talk and exercise. But this was Florida. And we'd leave around 8-ish in the morning um, and look for shade. And my son lives in a new development with no tree-shaded streets. Um, we would find someone. We got out of his neighborhood a little bit. But we would come back, and I would be soaked and miserable. And the AC in the house, it felt good, uh, but all I wanted to do was get out of those sweaty clothes, shower, and put on some fresh clothes. One time we got back, and my oldest daughter was visiting, and she was cleaning the bathroom, the very bathroom that I needed to shower in. And honestly, it was hard to be appreciative at that moment. Um, It's like, thank you, um, but I really, really want to shower. Um, I just wanted to get cleaned up. You felt that way before too, haven't you? I mean, you just want to change out of those dirty clothes. And that's a change that the gospel makes. It's as if you change out of a set of sinful clothes and put on a set of righteous clothes. His Robes for Mine is this great song we just sang which really explains that really well. Here's the big idea. God wants you to grow. He does. You, right here, sitting in the chapel this morning, he wants you to grow. In other words, he's not content with you being saved. He has love. Um, we, we, we say uh, sometimes that God's love just is it's unconditional. And that's, that's not exactly accurate. Um, God's love, it, it, it is true that he loves us not because of anything that we do. But sometimes we think of unconditional love as being something where that just means you can live any way you want because I love you no matter what. But, but God's love is better than unconditional It actually is love that changes us, that he wants us to grow in Christ, to be different. Too many many believers underestimate the power of the gospel. They think of the gospel as something that saves them from hell, probably also eliminates some sinful habits, but essentially leaves them that way for the rest of their spiritual lives. In other words, they don't think that the gospel starts them on a lifelong path of Christian growth. In fact, their understanding of Christ's likeness is so limited that they really think if they stop cussing or drinking or smoking, they've done about all that Christ could want. What's weird is there are so many other ways to grow in Christ's likeness. Jesus is compassionate. He's servant-hearted. He trusts his Father, which means he doesn't get anxious or worry. He's generous. He finds joy in God. 
He's gracious and forgives. Jesus doesn't hold grudges. He doesn't manipulate to get what he wants. And there are lots more ways that you and I need to grow in Christ. So so Jesus didn't save us so that we could be content with our spiritual lives, nor did he save us so that we could struggle with the same sins in the same ways year after year after year. The gospel makes a greater change than that. James 2, 14 through 17 says this, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You see, if you have faith, you have real faith in Christ, then it will result in good works. Now those works don't save you. They are the fruit of genuine faith. Faith is the root and the works are the fruit. Without fruit, there was no genuine faith in Christ. That's what James tells us. We're jumping into Ephesians chapter four this week, but Paul has written three chapters to the Ephesians about the great treasures that they have in Christ, that Jesus has made all the difference to them. In chapter one, he tells us that God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world in verse four. He says he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ in verse five. That we have redemption through Christ's blood, the forgiveness of sins in verse seven. That he has lavished grace on us. Verse eight of chapter one. Lavish grace. That's what you have experienced. And you may look at your life, and right now you may have come in this week and there are all sorts of things happening to you, and you are saying, it sure does not look like lavish grace. In fact, it looks like God is holding out the best things from me. That other people are getting those, but not me. Verse three of chapter one says, in him we have all spiritual blessings in Christ. There are no spiritual blessings that someone else is getting that you are not getting. We all have them in Christ. And right now, you are experiencing lavish grace. That's amazing. We have an inheritance in Christ, verse 11 tells us. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, this mark of ownership on us, mark of possession Verse 13, and God has put all things under Christ's feet and made him the head of the church. Verse 22. Then in chapter two, God was rich in mercy towards us and made us alive together with Christ. In chapter two, verses four and five. God seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse six. We are God's works of art. That's what verse 10 means. We're his workmanship, his works of art. We were far off, but have been brought near by the blood of Christ, verse 13. We have been reconciled to God. We have access to the Father through Jesus Christ, in verse 18. And we're not strangers and aliens anymore, but fellow citizens and members of the household of God. In other words, God didn't just take away your punishment. That, frankly, would have been grace enough. But he also welcomed you into his house. He made you and I members of his family. Verse three, 
We Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body. That tells, in verse six, we know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, verse 19. And verse 20, chapter three, you probably know this verse, God is able to do more than all of this. He can do far more than we can ask or think. That's who God is. And from that foundation, the Apostle Paul goes on to say that our lives need to be radically different because of Christ. We need to be growing in very tangible and measurable ways. So this morning, we're gonna learn two important thoughts that should give us an understanding of Christian growth. It's for all Christians, it's for you, it's for me. So the first important thought in Ephesians chapter four is this. You were taught the truth, now live like it. You were taught the truth, now live like it. Verses 20 and 21. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So just before this, verses 17 through 19 explains how we used to live before Christ, that, that our life before Christ affected our thinking and our walk. Uh, verse 17, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And you and I cannot live that way anymore. We can't. It's a pretty ugly picture that Paul paints here. Christians cannot live that way anymore because that's the exact opposite of how we learned Christ. Don't live that way, Paul's saying. The Christ the Ephesians learned was calling them to standards and values totally at variance with their former pagan way of life. Paul has this confident assumption that they have learned Christ. He says, assuming that here means, as I know you have learned Christ. Paul knew these people. And he knew the change that Jesus had made in them. Paul said they learned Christ in verse 20. Now he says that they heard Christ. It doesn't mean that they heard Christ in person. It means that they heard him in the gospel message. It, it means to be on the receiving end of proclamation about Christ. They heard Jesus in the voice of their teachers. And anytime anyone shares the gospel, for example, the person hearing it is essentially hearing Christ. That's Christ's message. And he says they were taught in him, taught in connection with him, or Jesus is the atmosphere in which the teaching was given. As the truth is in Jesus, he finishes it out, means that Jesus is the embodiment of truth. The truth is not intangible and abstract. The content of Christian truth is summed up in Jesus. So Jesus is the subject, the teacher, and the environment of their instruction. So what's Paul's point? You were taught the truth, so live like you were taught. You didn't learn Christ so you could live as unbelievers live. This is where some Christians get it wrong. They believe that Jesus saves them, but they don't think that he makes that big of a difference in their lives. Jesus has given them a better destination after their earthly lives are over, but he doesn't make that much difference now. But the Apostle Paul disagrees. You've heard Jesus. You've been taught Jesus. So now live like it. And I suppose those of us that have been saved for a long time can get complacent too, right? I mean, we did see spiritual growth in our lives. But now it seems like all of that is behind us. Now we're with kids and jobs and mortgages 
and we just don't think about growing spiritually as much as we did when we first got saved. But Jesus aims to make you different 24-7, 365. It's not just your destination that's different. You, you with your kids and your mortgage and your spouse and your job, you can live like Christ. You can respond differently to your kids or to your circumstances. Growth is not just possible. It's probable for those that work at it. So Jesus makes a difference in your life. Compare your living to Jesus' instruction and you'll know that you need to live differently. But you cannot change until you hear the voice of Jesus at salvation. Unless you've heard Jesus, learned Jesus, been taught in Jesus, you will have no power to change. And believers have been changed and now we need to live like it. So that's the first important thought. The second important thought and before you get excited, we're going to spend more time here, okay? I'm thinking, man, he's going to be done in record time. I'm not, okay? We're going to spend more time on this one. You were dramatically changed, now live like it. You were dramatically changed, now live like it. So Paul uses a series of three infinitives to describe Christian growth in verses 22 through 24. And sometimes uh, in, in the New Testament, an infinitive can be a command um, and that's what we find in chapter four, verse 17, for example. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So you must no longer walk is a command even though it's an infinitive in uh, the Greek language. So that's how some people interpret, hang with me here, the infinitives in 4, 22 through 24, as if they're commands. So the three infinitives are putting off, renewing your mind, and putting on. So that's the pattern for how a believer grows in Christ. However, others look at 4:22 through 24 and see that as the content or substance of the instruction they receive. So what were they taught in Jesus? Well, these three infinitives as objects of the verb tell us that they were taught that putting off and putting on happened one time at salvation. Believers were taught that to, to have put off or have laid aside the old person at conversion. In other words, they've been taught that becoming a Christian involves a decisive change. That you're not just taking off old clothes, you're taking off the old man. So understanding these verses comes down to a question of whether they describe a one-time event that happened at salvation or a repeated event that is a pattern for Christian growth. Or at least it seems that way. Uh, I'm going to ride the fence on this. Um, most agree that these infinitives do take, uh, have some type of command force here. Not in the sense that they, re they repeat the event of putting off the old person, but in terms of their continuing to live out the implications of their break with the past. So, here's the bottom line. I believe what Paul is describing here happened at conversion and it is also a pattern for how we grow today, that we must continue to put off the old ways of living. Yes, the old man is dead and we are new people, but sinful remnants of the old man still haunt us. We still sin and sin must be put off. So you must live out its significance by giving up on the old person that you no longer are. There is a repeated putting off of the old style of life. And I see repeated in the New Testament this concept of putting off sin and putting on righteousness, that it's a pattern for us. In other words, you were dramatically changed, so live like it. How can we live like it? We're gonna to start today, this is, this is gonna be much more general because the passage is general, and then in the week, we're gonna talk about specific ways that we change. But how, what, is, what does change look like in general? Well, it looks like putting off the old. That's verse 22. To put off your old self, 
which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So what is it that you're putting off? The thinking and behaving that were described in verses 18 through 19. That is the old man. That's the old manner of living. Put off, as you can guess, literally means to take off clothes, to put away, to store. It's your before Christ behavior that you're taking off. The old person is the pre-conversion, unregenerate person. Don't live like him anymore. Paul said it uh, in Romans 6, 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. No longer enslaved to sin. Colossians 3.9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. The old ways, the old practices should not characterize us anymore. Then Paul uses an interesting phrase in verse 22. He says, through deceitful desires. Put off the former manner of life that is corrupt through deceitful desires. So, so what does it mean? How are these desires deceitful? How do these desires lie to you and me? They lie and that they cannot possibly give what they're offering. They don't satisfy. They promise fullness of life, a promise they can't fulfill. Remember the first sin, Adam and Eve? The serpent promised them that they would be like gods, and they liked that thought. They liked that. How did that work out? That was a deceitful desire, wasn't it? It promised more than it could actually give. Our desires are deceitful and that they have lost touch with reality and they lead to destruction. And I think it's easier to see with certain desires than with others. For example, the desire a person might have to commit adultery clearly leads to destruction. Adultery destroys families, it hurts children, your spouse and children find it very difficult to trust you, it often leads to divorce, and those that have done that find out too late that they were deceived. What they thought would provide satisfaction only provided destruction. That's easy to see. We can all agree with that. We can look at that and say, yeah, that's a deceitful desire. But what about those desires that seem neutral or maybe even good to us? What about the desire to have a successful family? That's not a deceitful desire, is it? Yeah, it is. Because it promises something that it cannot fulfill. It can't actually provide satisfaction. See, satisfaction is only found in Christ. But we think it'll be found in, depending on the stage of life you're at, we think it'll be found if my kid, you know, is just potty trained. Maybe that's where you're at. That would be satisfying. Or when they can, you know, buckle younger siblings into their car seats. That was like, I remember from my wife and I, that was like amazing. Like, no longer does it take a half hour to get out of the driveway. And we think that'll satisfy. And your dreams get bigger. You think your kid, maybe, maybe, you know, you, you never quite made it to the major leagues, but maybe your son will. Maybe that dream will satisfy. Maybe they'll be the athlete that is the talk of the town. Maybe they're proficient in music. We think all these things will satisfy. I want to have a successful family. That's not a deceitful desire, is it? It is. Satisfaction is only found in Christ. Have you ever known someone to achieve their dreams and be discontent? That's actually the human condition. Because we're wired by sin, we always want a little bit more than what we have. A little bit more. I, I, God has been so good to me, but I see someone else who it looks like he's been better to, and I want a little bit more. 
I want, and then when I get that, I want, I want a little bit more. That's how we look at life. Desires are deceitful. Sometimes that deceit is obvious, sometimes it's more subtle, but either way, we are tempted to believe the lies that our desires tell us. And Paul here tells us, you gotta put off the old. The old ways of living, the old desires, the old practices, put them all away, take them off like you take off a dirty shirt. So how can we live like our lives were dramatically changed? Second, put on the new, 424. And put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, I realize I'm skipping a verse. We're going to come back to verse 23, so don't worry about it. Put on the new. Put on literally means, as you would guess, to clothe. It always has this idea of putting on clothing, that you and I were made a new creation at salvation, as Dave read this morning, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I love this picture Earlier in church history, some baptisms involved putting on a white robe after coming out of the water. Now, sometimes some of our churches, maybe you grew up with this, they use white robes as a person goes into the baptistry. But earlier in church history, they wouldn't put the robe on until they came out of the baptistry. Why? Because it was a symbol of putting on the new man. Not that baptism saves, but that baptism symbolizes our new life in Christ. So they'd have them put on some white clothes to symbolize that. What were believers taught here? That they had put on the new man at conversion, that the old person doesn't remain. He has been defeated. You don't have two natures, okay? You can't be a Christian and a non-Christian at the same time. You received the, uh, you received the old man at birth and were given the new man at your second birth. But sinful remnants of the old man, the flesh still remain, right? One person said it this way, the flesh is dead but also dying. We know that by experience, don't we? I mean, the flesh is dead, but it's also still fighting us. It's also dying. And you need to put that off and put on the behavior and thinking characteristic of the new man, that you should conduct your life in light of the mighty change that God has made in you. Verse 24 says that we were created after the likeness of God. That, that word created there is, is only ever used of God in scripture. He saved you. God did the work of salvation. He made you a new creation. And this new creation is made in God's spiritual likeness. It was created according to God. It's like God. It's created in his likeness. So we need to be righteous as he is righteous and holy as he is holy. God is the author of this work and the pattern of it. Notice that this new person is righteousness sourced in truth. The old person has lust sourced in deceit, so you can either live according to truth or live according to deceit. The growing Christian is more and more patterning his life after the truth of God's word and less and less after the deceitful desires of the old man. Or we could say that the growing believer lives by the truth of God's word, not by their feelings. Part of having your desires sanctified is saying no to them sometimes, right? Maybe after getting here to camp, you were exhausted this morning and you didn't want to get up, but you did. Why? Because that's living by truth, not by feelings, right? And that's what growing believers do. That, that's why a believer might have a difficult conversation with a friend. I mean, who does that? Who risks a friendship to tell someone what they need to hear? Those that live by truth, not by feelings. Who reads their Bible in the morning when they don't want to? 
who pursues Christ, even if their friend group doesn't? Those that live by truth, not feelings. So how can we live like our lives are dramatically changed? Put off the old, put on the new, and thirdly, renew your mind, verse 23, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Now, this is a present passive, which indicates this continuing action by God, that the believer is being renewed. Renewal is a process. It's happening to you even this morning. It's happening to us all the time. God is doing this. And if you're gonna change for God's glory, then your thoughts have to change. And this seems to echo, you see echoes here of Romans 12 too. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So this daily, continuous, inward renewal is necessary. It happens in the spirit of your mind, it says. This, this just means a person's inmost being. The pattern, the motivation, the direction of our thinking needs to change. So how does this happen? Well, God does the work as we look in his word. Isn't it true that often your thinking has been changed by the reading or the preaching of God's word? Haven't you come on a Sunday morning to church and heard truth that changed your mind? Maybe it even opened your eyes so you could see your life with a little bit more biblical clarity. God's word does that. And if you and I will read and meditate, if we will hear preaching and teaching from God's word, we will have our minds renewed. And you won't change unless your thinking has changed. Even though the lusts are deceitful, we like them. They haven't given us what they promised so far, but maybe the next one will. Maybe a little bit more will. Maybe they still will, but they won't. We have to have our thinking renewed. What I love about verses 22 through 24 is that they are followed by verses 25 to 32. So, so Paul follows this paragraph with some very practical teaching about Christian growth in specific areas. And so we're gonna get to that starting tomorrow. It's as if the Apostle Paul gives us the pattern for how we change and grow and then shows us what that looks like in specific areas of our lives. That he gives us the specificity that we need. We, we, this, is, this is the general plan of growth. We've got to put off, put on, and we need to do that because our thinking has been changed. But you and I need to see what that actually looks like in specific. And so Paul does that for us. And so we'll spend the next several days looking at that. So what's the next step for you this morning? Well, is it possible that you have not been changed by God? Now, I, I don't want to assume that everyone here is a believer. I'm, I'm sure that in a, a group this size, there's some people here who have never trusted Christ as their Savior. The, the gospel is the good news that your sin does not have to separate you from God anymore. In fact, you don't have to spend eternity separated from God in hell. That God provided a way out that fulfills his love for us but also doesn't violate his holiness or his justice. Because every sin in the universe will be punished. Every one. Either God punished it in his son, Jesus Christ, or you will face that punishment in an eternity in hell. It doesn't have to be that way though. Jesus died in our place. God poured out his holy wrath on Christ. And if you repent of your sin and trust Christ's death for your salvation, then he will make you a new creation too. It's not a prayer that saves you. It's not doing good things that save you. It's trusting Christ alone. 
And if you've claimed to be saved, but never actually had a desire to grow, maybe you weren't really saved. Saying a prayer doesn't save anyone. Trusting Christ alone saves, and when you are saved, you want to please your new master, Jesus Christ. Now, that growth may ebb and flow a bit, but in general, believers want to grow. They want to be different. They want to please their master. So what about those of us that are saved? None of us are living exactly like we should, right? I mean, we, we, we know that. We're not fooling anyone here. We came in here today looking, you know, nicer than normal, I guess, probably, since it's the Sunday morning one. Um, but we're not fooling anybody, okay? Uh, the stuff that happens in your family is probably stuff that happens in my family, too. We sin against each other. And we all know that there are specific areas where we need to be different. Christian growth is a process. It's not an event. It's great that you came to camp, and obviously, I'm for Christian camps. I worked at a Christian camp for five summers when I was in college. It was by far the best job I've ever had. It was awesome. Loved it. Change happens. It's great. But, but typically, the decisions you make here are just the start of the process of change. It's progressive. Change is not instantaneous. So where does God want you to grow? Has your heart been touched by the Holy Spirit this morning? A good plan is to think about what do you need to put off, what do you need to put on, and how your thinking needs to change. Develop a plan for change. Is your thinking being renewed? We gotta spend time in God's word. I, I'm only going to believe lies, I'm only gonna believe lies if that's all I ever hear. And I need to hear the truth. So how can you bump up your intake of God's word? What you're reading now, how can you increase it if even just a bit? You and I need God's word. We need his truth to change. Listen, Christianity is not moralism. It's not behaviorism as if by some sheer self-discipline you could change yourself. That's why Paul talks here about learning Christ, about hearing Christ, about being taught in Christ. You cannot change yourself, and yet you must change. Any steps to change must be taken in dependence upon Christ and the work he began at your salvation. I was reading Psalm 127 this morning, um, uh, and in God's uh, sovereign timing, I just happened to read it this morning, and it says, if the, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman watches in vain. Maybe that's how you've been approaching spiritual growth. You think it all rests on you. You do have to put effort into it. But unless God is doing the work, it's not happening. You must have a dependence upon him. So we take effort, but we trust Christ's work. And he will change you if you are his. Ephesians 2.10 reminds us of this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has good works that he wants you to walk in. He has ways that he wants you to grow. And this week can be, can be part of the process of you changing and growing. That's what I'm praying for. I hope that's what you're praying for this week. Let's bow our heads. God, we are thankful for your grace to us. Thankful, Father, that you don't just save us and leave us to kind of exist on our own, 
But God, you give us all sorts of resources, your word, the church, the Holy Spirit. God, you are, you are pleading with us to be different, to become more like your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that this week we would each take the next spiritual step that we need to take to become more like Christ. We can grow. Lord, maybe we've been defeated. Maybe we have that particular sin that is just, just seems like we can't ever see progress. And God, may we, may this week we have a renewed hope, a renewed certainty that you will change us for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.